All right. Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time studying the Bible together now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, And my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I would love to meet you in person. If we haven't met yet, I try to kind of grab new people as I'm walking in, uh, but, but miss a lot of you. We're glad you're here with us. We've been in this series that we've called What's Wrong with Church? And what we've been doing is uh, thinking about modern problems with the church through the lens of what was wrong in the Corinthian church, in Corinth, in ancient Greece, kind of a Las Vegas of the ancient world. There were a lot of issues that they had going on there. Um, And so as we've looked at this again and again, kind of at the end of Corinthians, we've come back to this idea that you can either trust Jesus and follow him, or you can not trust Jesus and start trusting yourself, start trying to do your own thing, and that's going to cause problems. And so what's wrong with the church is the same thing that's wrong with everybody. We want to be our own kings. We want to be our own gods. We want to do our own thing. So we're calling each other back to Jesus, seeing that Jesus is good, that he's given himself to us and that we can trust him and follow him. This week, we're looking more at chapter 15. So that can be found on page 960 or 961 in the Black Bibles, if you want to grab one of those Black Bibles, or if you have your own Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be in verses 12 through 34 today, and the main idea is that resurrection is essential. Resurrection is essential. The Corinthians were tempted to throw it out because it seemed weird. It wasn't palatable. It wasn't an attractive idea that there would be physical life given back to us, that our bodies would be redeemed someday. And we have to recognize that we struggle with this in our world as well. It seems unlikely from a naturalistic framework. Uh, We're tempted to just think that death is the end and that's it, everything's over. But the Scripture promises new life in Christ, that we would have redeemed bodies, resurrected bodies, and this is an essential part of what we believe So Paul's going to be challenging you and I, as well as challenging the Corinthians, to see how essential this doctrine is. Um, There's this idea in the science world called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. Um, It's often used to prove intelligent design and and biology, uh, but I think the best illustration of it is a mousetrap. If you take one piece out of a mousetrap, it no longer works. And that's the basic argument that Paul's making here. If you take out resurrection you don't have the good news of Jesus anymore. It's essential. We got to keep it. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I'm going to pause there. We'll read the rest of these verses as we move through the text this morning. But let me pray for us that God would help us to see how important this is um, by his spirit, by his resurrection power, that we would have faith in him and what he's doing. Let me pray. God, we ask that you would join us here and that what we do this morning as we look at your text would be a supernatural transformation of our own hearts and character. And so, God, I pray for those of us that are 
questioning and skeptical and have doubts, Lord, that you would give us an open mind, that you would help us to um, be receptive to your word. We pray also by your spirit that you would shape our character to look more like your son, Jesus, that you would transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look through the text, again, the big idea is resurrection is essential. And so the negative side of that would be we are tempted to throw it out. We're tempted to say, oh, there are things in our faith that are weird and not necessary. And as we've been working through the letter to the Corinthians, we've come across things that we've said are more essential and less essential. We've come across some things that we were like, well, that's a debatable thing. And Paul gave them some freedom you know, to, to live this way or to live that way. But then there are other things where he's like, no, this, this is always important. This, this always matters. It's essential. It's, it's bedrock. And, and resurrection is one of those things. He's like, yeah, there's no, there's no wiggle room here. This is not a gray matter. This is clarity and truth and a foundation that we're going to stand on. You don't have the gospel if you don't have resurrection to new life in Christ. And so I just want you to be praying about, Lord, what are the ways in which I'm tempted to, to kind of want to throw things out? because they're not palatable, they don't, they don't seem cool, they don't seem likely, maybe? And where do I need to be challenged personally uh, in this area? The resurrection is essential, and we see this in three ways. Resurrection destroys sin. That's his first argument. Resurrection destroys sin. Second argument is resurrection establishes the kingdom. Resurrection establishes the kingdom. And then his third argument is resurrection transforms our suffering. Resurrection transforms our suffering. That's really important if, if you're like me and you live in a broken world full of disease and death and struggle and pain. So the first point is that resurrection destroys sin. We see this in verses 12 through 19. Resurrection destroys sin. And so I would say our application that we'll come to at the end of this is because resurrection is destroying our sin, we should stop sinning. Sounds counterintuitive, right? You might think, well, if Jesus took care of it, I can just, who cares? I can sin all the more, that grace may abound. And Paul says in Romans, may it never be. He says, Jesus has taken care of sin so that it would no longer have mastery over us, so we can put it away. So resurrection destroys sin. Let's go back and look at his argument in verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So his basic premise is like, no, Christ is raised from the dead, so that means there is this concept, this exists, resurrection from the dead is a thing, right? And I mentioned this last week, Jonathan Dotson's little book on the resurrection called Raised is really helpful. If you want to get more into apologetics, this is a very short one, it's an easy start for you. And he says that both the Jews and the Greeks both were repulsed by the idea of resurrection preached in Jesus. The Jews didn't like it in this day and time, because their understanding was it would all happen at once. It didn't make sense to have this first fruits resurrection in Jesus, and then the rest of us get resurrected later. So the Jews had a hard time with that. And then the Greeks had a hard time with physical resurrection at all, because they knew how gross and dirty bodies are, and they just wanted to be free, right? And if you're sick, if you're struggling, if you're uh, fighting disease or depression, there's this sense of like, yeah, I just want to be free of this prison house of my body, right? I think that's a natural feeling that a lot of us have that was very much embedded in the Greek worldview at the time. Uh, But the answer is a new body, which sounds weird because it's hard for us to think of a a new creation, a physical creation, apart from decay and hurricanes and death and brokenness. It's hard for us to think of physical bodies without the limitations that our physical bodies have. But the promise of the scripture is that we're looking forward to being set free from all these physical limitations and yet still being physical somehow, right? 
So it's not being torn away from physicality, it's a redeemed physicality, it's a resurrected physicality. It's having bodies that do everything that bodies are supposed to do, um, eternal life, somehow still physical. It's a crazy concept, hard for us to even imagine. And Paul will give more details as he works through this chapter. We'll come back to this over the next couple of weeks. But here his argument is simply, we know it exists because it happened to Jesus. Verse 13, he says it this way, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Right? So he's like, okay, if if you want to have this concept that there's no physical resurrection, you have to negate the preaching of the gospel. And again, this can be a little confusing for us because we often think of the gospel as just Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, right? That's, that's often how we boil it down. And to be clear, the New Testament often summarizes it that way. So that's a fair way to summarize it. That's okay. It's, it doesn't make you a heretic to say the blood of Jesus or the cross of Christ as a summary for the good news. You just got to realize that that's all it is. It's a, it's a thumbnail sketch. It's a summary and that the full story is, not only did he die for your sins and absorb the wrath of God, but he rose from the dead. That's a part of the message. And so we can't leave that out. It's important to be explicit in the way we talk about it, but it's also important to remember, even when we just say the cross, or even when we just say the death of Jesus, we're implying the rest of the story, which is, he's alive. He defeated sin and death once and for all. So Paul's getting at this theology that's very important that, yeah, this has always been a part of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Verse 15, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from uh, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So he's just kind of going down this logical train like, okay, if, if you're saying resurrection doesn't exist, well, then we're all liars. And you said before you believed this gospel we preached, so you must believe in the resurrection. He goes on in verse 16, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Depending on where you grew up, that's either futile or futile, okay? I never know how to say it, Um, but I did look it up and both ways to say it are okay, just so you know, so we can have a, you know, internal debate about that later. But what does it mean? It means like it's a waste of time. It it doesn't accomplish anything. Um, And so he's saying, it doesn't work because you're still in your sins. If the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus didn't actually defeat sin and death. He was just a a symbol of sacrifice. The resurrection means that the sacrifice worked. The resurrection is often spoken about in the language of vindication. It's like, oh yeah, he won. He's the champion. He, He actually defeated the monster sin and death. He's the one that is ruling and reigning. He's The new Adam, he's going to come to later. So he really has defeated our sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying it's it's far more than just a good feeling of hope in this life. Throughout the 60s and 70s, uh, some of the plays met about Jesus implied this, and there was a lot of things preached about Jesus being just like an idea of hope, you know? Uh, Jesus just being kind of like a good feeling, kind of this model for us to look to of, of forgiveness and kindness and turning the other cheek. And just to be clear, Jesus should give us a good feeling, and he is a model, but he's more than that. He's actually accomplished our salvation. He's actually won the battle. And Paul's saying this is so important. It's not just an idea without real physical consequences, but it's something that worked. 
and is working in our life. It has defeated our sins. Uh, One of the ways I like to summarize it is this. If Jesus did not have power over death, then this world is all we have, right? He says it negatively. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. One preacher I heard say it this way 15 years ago. He said, it's kind of ridiculous that we're even here. He was critiquing Bible Belt culture, which I kind of think we're at a place in history where the Bible Belt is dissolving. It doesn't exist anymore. But there was this time in history, young people, where where people just showed up to church because it was the culturally appropriate thing to do. And during that time in history, that was kind of ridiculous, right? There are advantages to that, kind of improved society in some ways, some good things there. But ridiculous if people didn't actually believe in the power of the resurrection. This preacher said it's the lamest hobby in the world. If you don't believe that you're actually going to be raised from the dead. That, that's what makes all of this worthwhile. This hope that we have of our sins being defeated and us personally being set free from this once and for all. So the Bible, uh, we talked about this last week. The Bible talks about kind of past, present, and future salvation in many different places. And so resurrection, there's this looking back, we have resurrection in Christ. A lot of times when we talk about baptism as a symbol where we're, we died with Christ and we raised to new life. So there's this idea that we have resurrection life now. The way it's talked about in the Gospel of John is eternal life, right? We have this resurrection power coursing through our bodies right now so that we can say, I'm no longer condemned. Jesus sees me as delightful. He loves me. He's pleased with me. But there's also this future resurrection we look forward to of of being ultimately set free from sin and death. We call it glorification. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to be okay. We're going to not be tempted anymore. We're going to be whole physically and spiritually. And so we look forward to that future. So resurrection is true, which means our sins actually have been defeated. And the Bible logic of this is always, so then fight sin. Again, this seems counterintuitive. We want to say, if resurrection is true and I really am saved and I really am forgiven, I can do whatever I want. Paul's like, no, you're set free from this evil taskmaster that's been enslaving you and making your life miserable. You can now say no to these addictions. You can now say no to the power of sin in your life because it's been broken and defeated once and for all through Jesus' death and resurrection. So the logic is resurrection is true, so stop sinning. Resurrection is real, so throw away your old life and put on your new life. The way this is expressed in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, parallel construction, Paul says it in two places, so this is a good model for us to draw on, is we take off our old clothes of death selfishness, destruction, hurting others, hatred, bitterness, and we put on our new clothes of grace, forgiveness, obedience, honoring each other, serving one another. It's just taking off our old uniform, putting on our new uniform. The way Paul would say it this way is like, you've been set free from your slavery to sin and death, so why would you go back and put on your uniform of slavery to sin and death again? Stop putting that on. Put on the new uniform of redemption, of resurrection, of being set free in Christ. I grabbed a picture here of someone putting on uh, their football pads. I think I've got one of, uh, yeah, shoulder pads here, getting dressed. Uh, A handful of you wear a uniform to work, I think, right? So you can envision this maybe. Not all of us do that. Uh, But when you put on a uniform, it's a reminder of who you represent. And this this imagery is used in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Put off the old man, 
Put on the new man. Put off your connection to Adam and Eve and their rebellion and their selfishness, saying they want to be their own gods. Put on the reality that Jesus has died for you and he's risen from the dead. And you belong to him. You have hope now. It's this daily process. It's an acknowledgement of what Jesus has already done. But you've got to every morning say, this is what I'm purposing to do. I'm purposing once again today to believe it. Now, I just want to be clear. We, we preached this last week. We don't believe that you can be unsaved, resaved, unsaved, resaved. We, we believe that John 10 is true, that if you are in the hands of Jesus by faith, that nothing can snatch you out of his hands. And so what you do is every morning you get up and you're like, Jesus, I'm in your hands. I'm going to live like it. I'm going to believe it today. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you. Romans 8 talks about it this way. We're debtors no longer to our flesh. What does that mean? We don't owe a debt to the flesh. You don't owe a debt to your addiction anymore. Does it have a pull on you? Does it have a power on you? Is there temptation there still? Yes, but you can say no because of what Jesus has done for you. You look back and you say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe that you love me. I believe that you're better than this addiction. I believe that in the short term, maybe this addiction feels good. But in the long term, it's better to be with you. It's better to walk with you. It's better to obey you. So I'm going I'm to trust that what you say about me is true. I'm going to trust that I really am your son. I really am your daughter. And I'm going to now walk in obedience. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to stumble. I'm going to stumble. But every morning, we're going to get up and we're going to make this decision again. Say, I'm going I'm to believe what Jesus says about me. I'm going to put off the old habits. I'm going to put on the new habits. Now, we, we need each other in that process. We need to pray we need the Word of God. You need accountability. Um, you need all kinds of help. Throw everything you can at it. But ultimately, it's rooted in the resurrection power of Jesus. So when Paul's talking about this whole, you're not a debtor to the flesh, you're now a debtor to what Jesus has done in your life, he, he uses the same kind of concept of just actively put to death the deeds of the body. You get up every day and just purpose like, I'm, I'm pulling weeds today. Like today, again, I'm going to trust that Jesus is good. I'm going to pull these weeds of debts to the flesh. And I'm going to invest in trusting him and obeying him and following him. Paul, in this section where he's talking about this in Romans 8, says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit helps us to pray even when we don't have words to say. The Spirit helps us to recognize that God is our good Father who loves us. And if he's a good Father who loves us, we can trust him. And we should do what he says. Resurrection destroys sin, so we should obey God. The second point is that resurrection establishes the kingdom. Resurrection establishes the kingdom. We see this in verses 20 through 28. Um, this one's really hard for me because there are like five different major Bible themes all coming together in this one little passage of theology. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, buy me lunch in a couple of weeks, and I'll talk to you for a couple more hours about this. But the big idea is kingdom. We've got these kind of sub-themes of covenant. We've got sub-themes of federal representation. There's all kinds of deep theology here that ties together all of Scripture. Starting in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He uses the term falling asleep as a euphemism for death to show us that death for the Christian is temporary. So it's not that they don't actually believe in death. It's just a euphemism to be like, it's temporary. God is going to wake you up. Wake up, O sleeper, he says in Ephesians. So 
We're the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So we were created to be co-regents with God. We were created to be junior kings and queens. That's your calling. That's what God has created you for. You are royalty. And you, like me, have thrown it away in sin. But the, the good news is the story doesn't stop there. Jesus, the true Adam, the good king, came and reclaimed that kingdom. And so we're caught up in what he's doing. We're, we're now back on track to be kings and queens of creation because of what he's accomplished, because he's redeemed us. He says, by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each is in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So I'll stop there for just a second. So the picture here is Adam and Eve rebelled against God said, God, thanks for your grace, but we want to be our own gods. And that plunged the world into sin and death. And we have recapitulated that. We have replayed that. We've, we've done the same thing in our own lives. We've just lived it back out again like Adam and Eve. But Jesus came for us and said, you know what? I'm going to take your sin on my back. And I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to conquer sin and death once and for all. So Jesus is the new Adam. He, he does what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And then it's saying he's going to hand the kingdom over to God the Father. He's going to represent all of us. And so this idea is that because he's done what we should have done, we can now start to do what we should be doing. Do you see that? So we can now have that kingdom rule restored. God the Father is still the ultimate king, right? But Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be a faithful human. Now there's this historic doctrine called the Trinity. We believe in it. We think it's good and right and true. And the simple summary is that there is one God, one in essence, one what, we like to say sometimes, and three who's, three persons of the Trinity. There's this interaction we see in Scripture between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and yet there's still one God. There's a unity. And so the, the summary word for this is Trinity. That word's not found in the Bible, but it's a really good summary word for this theology of what we see represented in Scripture. And so here we see some of the harder to understand pieces of that. We see some of the interaction. I think where we are in world history and in Christian history, we tend to emphasize the divinity of Jesus more. Both things are true. Jesus is divine. He is God. And he's a human. So here Paul is talking about the human part of like, he's the human we were supposed to, do, to, to be. He's doing the things we were supposed to do. He's standing in the place of the failed reign of Adam and Eve. And so we just have to understand that some texts talk more about one aspect of the Trinity. Some talk about another aspect of the Trinity. Here, this text is talking about this uh, functional or role a submission where Jesus is saying, here, I'm handing the kingdom over now to God the Father. And so he has this picture of handing it over. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He is the conquering king. He's the conquering champion. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's quoting here the Psalms. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the ultimate enemy, the last enemy for him to defeat, the last monster. Paul will describe it later on in this chapter. 
Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. He's talking about God the Father, okay? So here's this interaction between God the Father and God the Son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So let's just admit, that's a little confusing, right? A little back and forth there, that's confusing. But we've got the, the all in all, the oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we've got this actual kingdom being handed over to God the Father. And Paul's saying, and the resurrection is proof and power that Jesus is this man we've all been waiting for. Another way to say this theologically is that the entire Old Testament says that we need a man to save us, and we're going to have a man to save us. And then we read these stories, and we're like, man, no, no man can save us. <laughs> it's not working out. When you actually read the Old Testament, all the heroes of the Old Testament are failures like you and me. And that shows us our need for someone perfect. And so only Jesus Christ, the God-man, can fulfill the need that's, that's opened up through these Old Testament stories. Only Jesus can make this work. He's the only one that can be this champion, both, both human and also divine. So he's establishing the kingdom. And Paul uses this phrase a couple of times, first fruits. I grabbed a picture of someone holding fruit um, let me just say out loud, thank you, God, for springtime. Things are growing again. Yeah, uh, if you're new to Central Texas, we've had two hard winters. And those of us that have grown up here have been like really whiny babies about it because <laughs> like we can't handle this, you know, like we're, <laughs> we're, we're used to a lot more sunshine. And so, man, yesterday was fantastic. Got to work in my garden. I'm excited to see little green buds popping on the trees, Right. And when you see the little sprigs of green, you're like, more green is coming, right? You got sunshine, you got little green sprigs, more is coming, more is coming. And that's what Paul is arguing here. Jesus' resurrection is this first down payment of like, there's, there's going to be a lot more resurrection, y'all. There's going to be a lot more. There's more to come. It's the first fruits of like, oh, here's a little taste of what is coming. And Paul's saying, this is, this is a little taste of of everything being made right, of the picture of Revelation 21 where every tear is wiped away, where all disease and death is gone. He's establishing that kingdom, the kingdom we all want. We love to fight about politics and and what would perfect things here and now. Jesus returning is what's going to ultimately perfect things. Doesn't mean we give up. Yeah, we try. We go to school board meetings. We vote. We, you know, we try to make our neighborhoods better and our country better, but, but there's this ultimate king who's going to fix everything. And he is our hope. And that's what gives us hope to to keep being faithful in the here and now, to keep obeying. And so his rule and reign translates through our lives in obedience, right? Because he's our king. Like, oh, he rose from the dead. He really is king. So I'm going to obey him instead of my addiction. He really is king. So I'm going to obey him and I'm not going to be caught up in anxiety. Y'all, it's a very anxious world right now. We have to work that's saying, no, Jesus really is king. Jesus really has risen from the dead. He really has defeated every power and every authority and everything is being placed in subjection under him. We have to work at that. It's a daily discipline of saying, no, this is true. The news tells me that everything's falling apart. But the good news 
tells me that Jesus rules and reigns, that he is resurrected, that he's defeated sin and death. So that enables me to just continue in daily faithfulness. So yeah, the world's falling apart, so I'm not going to fall for either of these two extremes. One extreme is, so I just got to check out, right? I just got to numb myself because the news is so frustrating. The other extreme is, we got to grab hold of this. We got to fix this right now, right? And we think that we can fix it all right now. There's this middle ground of Christian faithfulness where, where we neither check out completely, but we also don't take the reins and say, I got to fix it because nobody else is. It's faithfulness. It's like, what can I do today, Jesus, to establish your rule and reign, to establish your kingdom, to establish faithfulness, to push back corruption, to encourage honesty, to encourage care for my neighbors and my friends. And the scripture, more than anything else, pushes it back on our own personal moral obedience. We got, we got to care about society and, and remain engaged, but, but really the question is, especially in Corinth, are you going to actually obey the sexual ethics of Jesus? Are you actually going to obey the business ethics of Jesus? Are you going to actually love and serve each other the way Jesus commands you to? That's, that's the present pressure that, that Paul keeps talking about with the Corinthian church. They've been wanting to just check out and disobey and do their own thing. So how are you going to image the kingship of Jesus in your daily life? I think another daily way to think about this is Adam and Eve should have spoken truth to the serpent in the garden the way that Jesus spoke truth to the serpent in the wilderness. The Gospels give us this picture of Jesus being tempted by the serpent, by the ancient dragon in the wilderness, and he would speak truth. And so those are kind of two models for us. What I'm telling you is that because Jesus is king, you should follow the model of King Jesus. And when the serpent lies to you, you say, no, I can trust my father. He's good. Here's, here's the word of God. All right, the last point is that resurrection transforms suffering. Resurrection transforms suffering, so we should endure hardship. We should be steadfast. We should hang in there. We should not give up. We should keep going in daily faithfulness. In verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Um, this is one of those hard-to-understand verses. Um, we're not sure exactly what it means. I'm going to give you two options here and tell you my preference. Just know there's like 27 other options, okay? Um, so option number one is he's saying, why would we even go through this symbol of baptism, which symbolizes clearly in other scriptures, death and resurrection? Why would you, we use this as the primary symbol of the Christian faith, if death and resurrection isn't central to the good news, right? So that's the first meaning. That's a nice, simple, good one. I like that one. Uh, but because of the grammar, I'm, I'm tempted to the second uh, meaning. Tempted sounds bad, but I tend to think it's the second meaning, which is that they were actually doing this weird thing that happens in some other religions, which is vicarious baptism on behalf of other dead people. And so that's what a lot of commentators think, just based on the grammar, how it's worded. That he's not just talking in generalities about resurrection's a symbol of resur- uh, baptism's a symbol of resurrection, but he's actually talking about a specific weird thing they're doing. And he's saying, why are you doing this weird thing unless you believe in resurrection, right? Like, why would you be baptized on behalf of other dead people unless you believe that there's hope of them rising from the dead? And so that's what a lot of commentators think. I'm just going to kind of give you both. You can make your decision because it only appears one time in Scripture and it's not that important to us, Okay. Because we have this Bible study principle of, man, there's so many repeated important key things 
that we should obey, that we shouldn't really waste our time throwing away our faith on confusion and hard-to-understand verses, right? We always want to interpret them in light of the more clear verses. And so he goes on, moving through this emphasis on resurrection versus death, resurrection versus suffering. Verse 30, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. So where's Paul taking the theme here? He's saying, like, we suffer. Life is hard. Why would we do this hard life if there was some other option? Why would we suffer for good if we didn't have hope of resurrection? Paul says, I die every day. Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Some think he might have actually fought wild beasts, like gladiatorial thing. A lot of people think he's talking about he had to fight against those that were trying to kill him. You know, so it's like a metaphor for uh, people, again, inflicting suffering. Either way, the theme is suffering, right? Paul's like, why do I put up with all this suffering unless I've got hope of resurrection? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's clearly where Paul is quoting one of the Proverbs of the day, saying, that's not a good idea, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, that's what you should be doing. If the resurrection's true, go start using crack cocaine, right? Numb yourself, eat, drink, gorge yourselves. Find whatever pleasure you can as quickly as you can. Now, here's the other side. If you're a Christian and you say you believe in the resurrection, you should not be doing that, okay? We live in one of the most comfortable countries and time periods in the history of the world. And Paul is saying, if you believe in the resurrection, your primary goal should not be comfort. Is there a common sense like, yeah, I'm not going to make myself miserable on purpose? Yes. Christians sometimes take this to the other extreme where we're like, well, God will love me more the more miserable I make myself. That's not, that's not the point either, right? But he's saying your primary driving need and desire every moment should not be your own comfort but to say, Jesus, I see that you've established my eternal comfort in heaven. I see that I have resurrection hope. So will you transform the suffering that I'm going through today? And will you give me opportunities to give that hope to other people, to serve others the way that you served me? It gives us the, the freedom to look beyond ourselves. So he says, if it's not true, eat, drink, tomorrow we die. But he's implying, oh, but it's true. So don't be about that. Verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals right? If you're hanging out with people that are saying that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shrink your faith in the resurrection. It goes on, verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Don't go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So what's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Some of you are living like pagans. So don't come here and say you're a Christian just because you show up at a church. Don't just say that you believe in the resurrection, Corinthians, because you're sitting there when the group got together and they read the letter from Paul. Just being there to hear it doesn't mean you have faith in the resurrection. He's saying, actually believe in the resurrection. Actually make the resurrection your hope and, and put away these other distractions. No longer be fixated on comfort, but give yourselves to others. The resurrection transforms our suffering. It gives meaning to our suffering. Paul says, I die every day. I suffer every day. I struggle every day. As you serve other people, it's going to bring suffering in your life. 
because other people are sinners and other people have needs, right? This world is a world of suffering. This world is a world of disease and death and brokenness. And Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to that suffering. My favorite passages in Philippians, Paul says, of course I'd rather be in heaven with Jesus right now, but I believe he's left me here for the purpose of fruitful labor, to work, to serve, to help others. And then I trust that this reward in the end is going to make it all worth it. And that's what I want you to hear this morning. If you're suffering and struggling to be faithful in this world, to keep trusting Jesus, Jesus will transform that suffering. Everything sad will become untrue. He's, he's going to transform our suffering and, and use it for his glory. That's, that's the greater message of Romans 8. We can continue to trust him, that we can continue to be faithful. As Paul works through this language all the way down to the end of chapter 15, which we'll come to in a few weeks, in chapter 15, verse 58, he gives us this uh, primary application for the entire chapter, right? Resurrection's true, resurrection's true, resurrection's true, resurrection's true. Here's the application. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I think when the fall of Afghanistan took place, many people felt like their labor was in vain. I think if you've ever had a project go wrong, you can feel like your labor is in vain. I think if you've worked to be healthy and then you get cancer, you feel like your labor was in vain. Like if you've tried to be faithful in your relationship and then things blow up, you can feel like your labor is in vain. Paul's saying, no, if the resurrection is true, your labor is never in vain. Even if you don't see the immediate victory this week or next week or next month, continue to be faithful. Be steadfast. Keep doing good because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the call. Be steadfast. Be immovable. I got a picture of somebody trying to move a rock. You ever done this? You go, I think that's the Grand Canyon. We've taken pictures like this. I couldn't find any of my family's pictures from going to Enchanted Rock, but there are big boulders like this at Enchanted Rock. If you're new to the area, great state park. Go hang out there. It's beautiful. Um, Not on a Saturday. It's very busy. Go, Go during the week if you can. But sometimes we'll do that. We'll try to move the rock, right? What Paul's saying is that you should be the rock because Jesus is the rock you should also be a rock. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, you need to be steadfast and immovable. You need to keep doing good. You need to not give up, but abound in good works. Keep being faithful. Even if you get cancer, keep being faithful. Even if your relationships blow up, keep being faithful. Even if you go bankrupt, keep being faithful. He's going to say those messages are going to be screaming at you that it's all a waste and it doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, have an eternal perspective The resurrection is real. Jesus really has defeated sin and death. So that transforms the here and now. That gives meaning to our suffering and to our struggle. And I want you to know this is not easy for me anymore that it's easy for you. I'm tempted in in the exact same way that you are. When hard things happen to me, the first thing I want to be is like, well, forget it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, no, keep going. Trust me. Jesus has risen from the dead. Trust him. Don't don't give up. Keep abounding to do good. We'll wrap up here. The resurrection is essential. And Paul says in Philippians that the major temptation for us is to trust either in the strength of our flesh 
or the indulgence of our flesh. This theme comes up again and again. You're either going to want to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That was the major temptation of the Corinthians, and I think it's a major temptation in our culture today. But there's also the religious temptation of just being really, really, really good. I'm going to be so good that God will have to bless me. And Paul says in the Philippian letter, that you know what? There's this third option. It's called trusting Jesus. And Paul says he's given up on his own perfection, and he's challenging in Corinth. Give up on your own indulgence. Don't trust the indulgence of your, of your flesh. Don't trust the perfect discipline of your flesh, but trust Jesus. And Paul says it this way. I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but I've got the one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, you know what faith in Jesus looks like? It looks like suffering and knowing the supernatural power of the resurrection of Jesus coursing through your life because he's gracious, because he loves you, because he's given himself for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave your life for us and help us to see that that's not just something that happened over there in history, but it's something that is happening now. Resurrection power is coursing through our lives as we trust you, as we submit to you, as we honor you. We thank you for that and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.